Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Joining us today from the studios at WUNC at Chapel Hill is longtime friend, distinguished Southern sociologist, I would argue also historian, John Shelton Reed, who has a new book, a very different book, I think, for him, but it's called Dixie Bohemia, A French Quarter Circle in the 1920s. And John, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Let's talk about how this book came about. You were asked to give the Fleming Lectures at LSU, which is a very distinguished lectureship in Southern history. But you, sir, are not a historian. (laughs) Right. No, uh, I'm not the first non-historian to give these lectures. They've run for 50 years, by the way. But I am certainly the first sociologist and most often, most usually, it's a, it's a historian. No, I was very pleased and flattered to be asked. I thought I'd written my last book, but when this invitation came, I, I couldn't say no to it. In your preface, you, you say that you've run out of things to say. You mean you're not going to check Dixie Dateline anymore? Or, <laughs> you, you know, is the South enduring? I, I'll, I'll let somebody else follow up on that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty much out of the survey research game, which is my preferred way of addressing that question. But no, you're right. I've sort of uh, drifted over the years into uh, softer stuff like history and, you know, lyric poetry is probably next. In fact, I have written a country song, but that's another story. When you publish it, I'll ask you back and you can sing for us. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So you were determined you weren't going to rehash anything that you had done, which is what Although very distinguished people give the Fleming lectures, sometimes they do talk about what they have done in the past, or they'll say, this is my hot new topic, this is what I'm going to do next. But you didn't want to do either one of those options. Yeah, this uh, invitation usually comes toward the end of one's career, uh, obviously, and uh, a lot of people do use it as an opportunity to review what they've done with their life. But you know, I actually started doing that some years ago, and uh, I think I need to give it a rest. So I was looking for a new topic, not to spend decades on, but just to write a book about, something I didn't have fun writing and something I had some hope of addressing successfully. And I kicked around a number of ideas that didn't quite pan out. And one day my wife, Dale, a sometime co-author, Dale said, why don't you write about the French Quarter in the 1920s? There's a reason for that which is that she and I, for some decades now, have collected Mexican silver. And uh, one of the most distinguished designers of Mexican silver is a guy named William Spratling, who lived in the quarter in the 20s, where, in fact, he was William Faulkner's apartment mate. So all of a sudden I said, you know, that is a really good idea. And besides, we can spend some time in New Orleans doing research, air quotes, doing research for it. And uh, I started the next day and, uh, you know, year and a half later, I'd written a book about it. The title itself is very enticing, Dixie Bohemia. Yes, like a lot of country songs, it's kind of downhill from the title. Oh, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. (laughs) No, the title came to me, as sometimes things do, in in the middle of the night, I woke up one morning and had that in my head. I, I think it's a good title, too. I'm pleased with it. You mentioned Spratling, and of course, at the time you're writing about, he was on the faculty at the Tulane School of Architecture. Even though he didn't have a degree, he had grown up in Auburn as a sort of as an orphan. Yeah, he grew up with his uh, father's relatives. His parents were both both died early, and he he did grow up in Auburn, closest thing he had to a home. He picked up Southern accent. He was actually born in upstate New York, but left had Southern parents. And went to Auburn, didn't graduate, uh, but he was good enough that he was, despite not not having a bachelor's degree, he was teaching drawing courses in the architecture school at Auburn, and he was hired to do that at Tulane. Things were uh, simpler in those days. He opted to live in the French Quarter, which today people think of as a very chic address, but it was not in the 1920s. No, uh, the French Quarter was a slum. I mean, it was a, a place respectable people for the most part, didn't go, certainly not after dark, except maybe to eat at uh, Antoine's or Arnaud's or some of the Creole restaurants down there. But one thing I didn't realize, and I think most people didn't realize, is that in 1910, uh, it had become a, a place of residence for Italian immigrants. Maybe 90, as much as 90% possibly of the quarter's population were Italian, and in fact, Sicilian. The people in New Orleans were calling it Little Palermo. And they... Uh, 
came. They were poor. They were illiterate. They, many of them didn't speak English. Uh, they packed them into these elegant Creole houses that had been turned into tenements. They often raised chickens in the courtyards and that sort of thing. I mean, these are peasants from Sicily. And they didn't stay that way. Uh, they moved on to become fruit vendors and merchants of various kinds. But They had corner grocery stores, taverns, bistros. And being Sicilian, they didn't much care for the law. Well, that's a big part of the story. Uh, yeah, this is taking place during Prohibition. But uh, in New Orleans, uh, Prohibition was a joke. And it was largely the Sicilians who, who made it that way. There was a, we'd call him today a mafioso, but at the time he was uh, just ran the syndicate. His name was uh, Silver Dollar Sam Carolla, and he controlled the li liquor traffic in New Orleans. I think, I forget the number, something like 76 bars in an eight-block area. Somebody counted in the French Quarter. You could get your liquor in teacups at respectable restaurants like Arno's. Uh, William Faulkner, uh, who was already a heavy drinker, bought his uh, from a, a priest at the cathedral who was had a little bootlegging operation going on the side. <laughs> and, and there was actually a fairly famous open bar right across from the police headquarters, right? Yes, well, Celeste's. Uh, yeah, it was an open bar and uh, sort of a low-life dive. Uh, Carl Karmer, who's a New York writer, went there and was bemused because he's, he's, it was a hangout for homosexuals and transvestites as well as a, and it was literally across the street from the police station. Well, that liquor people were getting, though, it went by scotch, gin, what have you, but I said... Yeah, unless, unless you were really going to pay a lot, what you were getting was probably raw Cuban alcohol with flavorings in it. And, and Faulkner talks about this in some of his stories about, doesn't he have a little old lady who, she put a little bit of juniper or she put some iodine and yes and then the iodine you got your scotch juniper you got your gin but it was all the same alcohol yeah and they, and, uh, and, and pretty potent stuff too yeah spratling talked about you know rolling these cans of alcohol around the floor to uh, mix it and aerate it the downstairs neighbors complained but no it, it, the place was wide open and and alcohol was for this crowd what uh, marijuana would be for a later generation of bohemians it was uh you know, it gave them all something in common that was uh, mildly illegal, had a certain thrill of the illicit to it. You talk about a circle, but there really wasn't an organized group, sort of, I don't want to say the patron or the big kahuna, whatever, was Sherwood yeah. Anderson. Yeah, the big, big enchilada. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the center of this book, by my, my the hook I hung it on, was another book uh, that William Faulkner and William Spratling wrote for their own amusement and for their friends called Sherwood Anderson and Other Famous Creoles. The title is a joke that's too much trouble to explain. But No, I, 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 no, I think we need to explain that to our listeners. <laughs> okay. because, well, all right. I mean, Sherwood Anderson's about as Midwest as you can get. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, there was a, a cartoonist for Vanity Fair, uh, last name of Covarubius, who, who had done a book... Uh, 1925 or so, called uh, The Prince of Wales and Other Famous Americans, which was a collection of his caricatures for Vanity Fair of celebrities of various kinds, including the Prince of Wales. So Spratling, who was an artist and uh, knew and admired Covarrubias, said to Faulkner one day, said, why don't we do a New Orleans version of this thing? And Sherwood Anderson had moved there from, uh, from the Midwest. He had moved with his third wife, Elizabeth, uh, and they had taken a place right on Jackson Square in the heart of New Orleans. They were from the center of the social life here. They had a parties, dinner parties every Saturday night. They always keep an open house. You didn't need an invitation. Elizabeth said, you know, if, if you sent out invitations, people would feel they had to have one to come by. So basically folks just dropped in. So Anderson was older. He was celebrated. He was at the peak of his career. He was winning prizes and people referring to him as the Dean of American Letters and things like that. Hard to imagine now, but he was a, a big deal. And so they put him, his, his was the first caricature in the book. And oddly enough, they didn't put Elizabeth in, his wife, although she was a very important part of the circle. I, I write about her a good deal in, in my book just to make up for that. But this is a collection of Faulkner's sketches, I mean, drawings of the two of them, Faulkner and Spratling, and 41-odd of their friends. 
who, as you said, are not a group. They're sort of a social circle. They have friends in common. They have interests in common. Uh, not all of them knew each other. They all did know Spratling. It, it, it's kind of it's looser than a group. And they range in age. Marion Marian Draper, the youngest, was 20. She was a Tulane cheerleader. Grace King, the oldest distinguished uh, woman of letters, novelist, historian. She was in her 70s, uh, so a 50-year span between the youngest and the oldest. And I doubt that those two, incidentally, were ever in the same room, you know, but uh, Spratling knew them both. Yes, they had these connections. They were writers, artists primarily, not so much musicians. That's one of the things that, that was intriguing to me is jazz was literally right there, but they pretty much ignored jazz. Yeah, here they are surrounded by this uh, uh, burgeoning, fertile musical scene. And some of them went to clubs to hear it. Faulkner and, and a couple of the newspaper men used to go, uh, had a particular clarinetist that they liked. A couple of them were you know, dancers, and they had uh, endless parties, lots of balls, costume parties, that sort of thing. And they had bands playing for those, presumably uh, playing something like jazz a good deal of the time. But... <sighs> They were not fans, and they didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Several of them were really interested in spirituals and work songs. I mean, they weren't. It's not that they weren't interested in the music that Black New Orleans were creating, but it was the older, old-fashioned kind of music that they were interested in. So they'd hang around on the docks and listen to the stevedores uh, singing, or they'd go, they'd pay visits to black churches just to hear the hear the music. But uh, they had very little to say, and as far as I can tell, knew very little about uh, jazz. Well, I mentioned artists and writers, but creative writers, but there were also journalists, very important part of this scene. Yeah, newspaper people, uh, including a number of uh, pioneering newspaper women, are very much part of this. I forget the numbers, but it could be something like a third of the people I'm writing about had at one time worked for newspapers, and those that didn't work for newspapers, sometimes picked up spare change working for them. I mean, uh, Faulkner wrote little sketches for the Times-Picayune. Spratling sold drawings to illustrate stories in, in the, all three of the newspapers. New Orleans was a, was a hot newspaper town. There were three newspapers to begin with, and then four, uh, hotly competitive, lots of jobs for journalists, lots of coverage of the local art scene. It's, it's sad. <laughs> It had four daily papers, and now it has, what, three-sevenths of one of the Times-Picayune publishes three days a week. Well, at least the Times-Picayune has now gone back to actually publishing something. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was going to be online. For, anyway, and that was one of the things that fascinated me is you, you talked about institutions, uh, the theater, the Arts and Crafts Club. But to me, the the nexus, the connection with the journalists seemed to be what really kind of fed this, that they were— unashamedly self-promoting. Oh, yes. Uh, and as you mentioned, you've got four newspapers competing for business, and th the sort of slightly racy or risque stories coming out of the quarter made for great reading. Yeah, it, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, uh, a couple of these people, a couple of young artists, a, a girl who was, came from a wealthy uh, New Orleans Jewish family and a, a boy who, who was from a lower-middle-class Italian family, got married secretly in France one summer. And when it was revealed that fall, it was literally a front-page story in one of the newspapers. You know, <laughs> these days, who cares? You know, who would notice? But when they put on a play, uh, there was a big build-up to this play that one of my famous Creoles had written. The guy that wrote these stories didn't mention that he was the lead in the play. You know, the, the conflict of interest, uh, that whole idea had not yet been coined as far as I can tell. Uh, but the newspapers not only provided jobs and you know, spare change for these folks, they also served to recruit people to the group by covering it. I mean, everybody knew that uh, something was happening in the quarter because the newspapers wrote about it and other newspapers picked it up. I mean, there were stories about it in the New York Times. People came to New Orleans because they knew it was living was cheap and uh, something interesting was going on. Wasn't uh, Spratling and Faulkner's landlady a newspaper writer? Yes. Uh, she's one of the most remarkable characters, a woman named Natalie Scott. She, she wrote a social column for... Uh, I think it was this, the item 
and read one of the papers. She also was covered crime stories, uh, and she wrote a, a, a prize-winning play in her spare time. And she, she uh, was an early investor in uh, real estate in the quarter and rented it out to her friends, many of them artists and writers, and made a good deal of money that she lost it later in the Depression. She was a horse horsewoman. She rode her horse once to Mexico City. Rode Just Mex- a remarkable. Rode it to Mexico City? Yes. And... Uh, uh, and she, she 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 was already famous uh, by this time because she was the first, only woman to win a Croix de Guerre in the First World War. She was a Red Cross nurse and evacuated a hospital under fire, and was decorated by the French. So she she was quite, she was quite a character. Uh, and she didn't stop when you know after my book she moved down to Mexico and basically. Changed the changed the world in Tosco, uh, in Mexico. She brought in doctors and sewage systems and organized schools and f- for the kids. And she she was just a force of nature. Well, let's talk about. I've already mentioned the Arts and Crafts Club and the and and the Little Theater, a magazine, the Double Dealer, and what I want to kind of lead into for just a, a segue, John. After we talk about those, is do a little bit of comparison with the Charleston Renaissance. I have a beautiful copy of your book, but it is so scribbled up with notes that I have <laughs> I have said, well, now, this was happening in Charleston at exactly the same time it was happening there. So let's... That, let, that, let, that's, let's the, that's the greatest form of flattery, by the way, Walter. I love it when people write in my books. It means they're thinking about it. All right. Let's talk about the institutions and movements, if you will, that sort of came out of this Dixie Bohemia. One, of course, is historic preservation, the mm-hmm. Vaucouray. That was pretty much founded by members of this uh, famous Creoles group, right? Yeah, there, there was an interesting alliance going on uh, between the artists, the Bohemians, uh, who began to move into the French Quarter, into this slum that everybody thought was dangerous. They were sort of the shock troops of this movement, but the money for re- rehabilitation and, and the impetus for preservation came largely from society women uptown many of whom were artistically inclined, so they knew these folks. I mean, the Le Petit Theater, as they call it. I spent two years trying to get my mouth around the French pronunciation of theater, and then I learned they call it Le Petit Theater. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Le Petit Theater was founded and funded by uptown society women, but, you know, these people I'm writing about were designing sets. They were acting in it. Uh, it was a curious mix. And something I've read about a bit is the role of, of gay men in this enterprise, uh, vastly overrepresented among the crowd I'm writing about it, perhaps as many as a third of the uh, artists and uh, writers. Uh, they very much involved in historic preservation, as indeed they are today, and not just in New Orleans. There's a very interesting book about the role of, of gay men in historic preservation, but this alliance between bohemians, often unconventional in various ways, and uptown society women is what really got that uh, enterprise going. Now, you mentioned Charleston. Uh, Charleston, about the same time, had a, also a very significant preservation movement, but I don't think there, uh, that was, again, society women. But I don't think you had the Bohemians, but I don't think you needed them because you didn't have, you know, the, the interesting buildings in Charleston were scattered around. There wasn't this one neighborhood full of poor immigrants raising goats that uh, you well, had but, to have. But, but now Charleston, south of Broad, John, in, in 1920 was a slum. Yeah. It was primarily an African-American slum. I mean, Porgy. Oh, that's true. Rainbow Row. Yeah, Rainbow Rainbow Row. Hayward Washington House, all all of those, there might have been chickens and goats raised in the backyard. I suppose uh, there might. Well, yeah, I, I, I start talking about Charleston. I don't really know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I, I spent a couple of months in the archives in, in uh, New Orleans. I have a pretty good grasp of what happened there. Well, well towards the end of of your book, you well, it's not the end of the book. It's the end of discuss, discussing the group as a whole. You do make a comparison with Nashville and, and Charleston, and you do talk about some of the things going on in Charleston, but you say the movement in Charleston was not Bohemian. It was Episcopalian. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a throwaway line that I kind of like. Uh, and, and I think it's kind of true, you know, but, but 
you know, why did it happen in New Orleans and why did it not happen elsewhere? I mean, Charleston had a lot of the same things New Orleans did. It was a port city. That meant it was cosmopolitan in various ways. Uh, it, it had this wonderful architecture that was uh, something that uh, artists could draw and, and live in if they felt like it because it was, it was run down. On the other hand, it, it just wasn't as big a city. There weren't as many of the kinds of people that you're interested in. Also, I'm persuaded that... Uh, New Orleans, with this Mardi Gras tradition and basically a Roman Catholic ethos, a lot of these women were Jewish or Protestant, but still, it's a party town in a way that Charleston is not. Charleston more refined, more proper. So you did have an art scene in Charleston, obviously, well-known. In fact, the art's better than what came out of New Orleans at the time. But you didn't have a university as... New Orleans did. And Tulane was very important, but I, I, I think we need to mention that Sophie Newcomb, which was the female college of Tulane, might have even been more important than oh, yes. the boys uh, on Tulane Avenue. Yeah, the uh, Newcomb is best known today for the pot- pottery that it turned out, but the art school at, at Newcomb not just doing pots, they were doing training painters as well. And a lot of these women went on to think places like the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and came back. And they were living in the quarter, some of them, painting the quarter, most of them, very much a part of the scene. In fact, uh, one of the things I like about this crowd and about this book that I'm taking off from is that it does give appropriate attention to the, to the women involved. Uh, with the exception of Elizabeth Anderson, Sherwood's wife, inexplicably was left out. But uh, it's got Marion Draper, the cheerleader. It's got Grace King, the novelist. It's got Natalie Scott, the war heroine, and Phil, the state investor. It's got a, a dozen others I could tell you about. One of the other important things I think about the, the Newcomb connection is a lot of local New Orleans women went to Newcomb. Yes. There were two brothers I don't want to get off into too many finer detail that's in the book, but uh, Ellsworth and uh, William Woodward, the New Englanders, Ellsworth Woodward was the head of the art school at Sophie Newcomb and, and uh, trained a lot of these women. His brother, William, was uh, in the architecture school at Tulane, and Tulane didn't have an art school or art department properly, but a lot of the architects went down and did drawings of the French Quarter buildings as well as if you were artistically inclined and a boy at Tulane until the Arts and Crafts Club was founded, you went to the architecture department because that's all there was. All right, we've, we've got the universities, which are which are, are important. We've got the preservation movement, the theater. have a, a bookstore, too, the Pelican Bookstore. Yes, I, I, actually several bookstores, but uh, one of the most uh, important was something called the, the Pelican Bookstore that actually uh, had a part in publishing Faulkner and Spratling's little book. But it was a hangout for the artistic crowd. Uh, Later, as the neighborhood developed and became a bohemia rather than a slum, parts of it anyway, uh, they founded other bookstores and and coffee houses and all of the apparatus of of a bohemia, you know, and galleries. People started to come as tourists. That's another story. But that's the end of my story is, is when it becomes a tourist trap. And then, unfortunately, they decide to stay, and that's the end of yeah. Dixie Bohemia. Real estate prices go up, and Natalie Scott makes a lot of money, but a lot of working artists uh, are priced out of the neighborhood, and they have to move on. There was almost a conscious effort, though, to create this Bohemia. We talk about the circle, and it wasn't formally organized, but they're oftentimes referring to the left bank in Paris and to Greenwich Village. Yes, they're very self-conscious about what what they're doing. And, you know, many of these people were cosmopolitan. They had been to Paris. They'd been to New York. Some of them went back and forth pretty regularly to, to Greenwich Village. So they, they knew the kind of neighborhood they were trying to emulate. And to a great extent, they, they succeeded. It wasn't it was a smaller operation, and it wasn't as artistically important, and it was racially segregated. That's another point I talk about at some length. Uh, but they wanted to be Montparnasse. You know, they wanted to be Greenwich Village, and they knew what it took to do that. And so they were. They had galleries. They had coffee shops. They had bookstores. You mentioned the Paris connection, and just a brief aside to 
Mobile, much smaller city, where the Haunted Bookshop, which was still operating in the 1970s, was the center of what was Mobile's art group. But the actual artists that were associated with that in Mobile, and I know, I'm, I'm guessing in New Orleans too, literally made regular visits to Paris. Uh, the carnival organizations in Mobile were ordering their costumes from Paris as late as 1941. So there's a, there's a continual European connection that you don't have elsewhere. And if it's, yeah. hap- if it's happening in Mobile, I'm sure it was it was the same in New Orleans. Oh yes, the, what's now Brennan's restaurant at, in the 20s was something called the Patio Royal, which was a place where they had debutante parties and things. But it also had a, a lingerie shop in it that sold uh, imported French lingerie. I mean, this is, uh, and a French woman ran it. Previously, it had been the house of Paul Morphy, uh, chess uh, yes. chess grandmaster. But that's another story. That's another side. His world championship chess set is at Bellingrath Gardens in Mobile, Alabama. Oh, is it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. We Southerners can make these connections, John. You know that. I do. (laughs) I do indeed. And, John, we need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with John Shelton Reed from the studios at WUNC in Chapel Hill. And we're talking about his latest book, Dixie Bohemia, A French Quarter Circle in the 1920s. Okay, John, back to New Orleans and this self-conscious bohemia. You mentioned earlier that alcohol was a very important part of the scene, and we're talking about drinking this pretty raw stuff that's coming out of Cuba, sugarcane liquor, mm-hmm. uh, doctored up for whatever. But from some of the entries that I'm, I'm were there parties literally every night? It sounds like, I mean, this sounds like round-the-clock. Uh, yeah, the- <laughs> darn near, it's remarkable that anybody got any any work done. And in fact, uh, Sherwood Anderson uh, wrote that he had a little hidey hole that he went to to try to write because people were constantly dropping in at the house and he couldn't get couldn't get any work done. Oliver Lafarge was a uh, anthropologist at Tulane who uh, was uh, he was from New England, a very prim New England background. But he he showed up in New Orleans and went native, you know. And within uh, <laughs> a few months, he was uh, wearing an Indian headband and doing the eagle dance on tabletops at parties. Uh, and he he had an apartment right off Jackson Square, and he said in his memoirs, you know, his party nearly every night went on until two o'clock in the morning. And then all of a sudden, in 1929, he published a book, a novel. Set in the Southwest among the Indians, won the Pulitzer Prize. So somehow Lafarge was getting stuff done despite being hammered half the time. There's a scene of him and Faulkner uh, wandering down the street uh, arm in arm singing an obscene song. Didn't Faulkner, his book Mosquitoes, uh, which is not one of his best known, no. in fact, he finally, what did he call it, trashily something? Yeah. I, can't recall what he he said it was a bad <coughs> book. He'd have taken it out of his canon, I think, toward the end. Yeah, Sherwood sure Anderson, one of the most famous parties, because Faulkner used it as the basis for that novel, Mosquitoes, came when uh, Sherwood Anderson, the, the, a writer named Anita Luce, who wrote uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, uh, was visiting, and Anderson rented a boat to go out on Lake Pontchartrain for the day. Uh, then she couldn't make it because she had a deadline, but the party went on anyway. And a dozen or so people, and within a very short time, people were disagreeing about who was actually there. But uh, plainly, Faulkner was, and the Andersons, and uh, uh, Spratling, and several other people are agreed on, and then others claim to have been there, and people say, no, they weren't. But they went on a Lake Pontchartrain for this excursion. And they got out in the middle, and the engine started to sputter, and the place smelled like uh, fuel, and people were not particularly happy. They were intended to go to shore uh, on shore at Mandeville across the lake, but the mosquitoes were so bad that nobody wanted to get off the boat except except Faulkner and one of the girls. They wanted sampled the delights of Mandeville. But I said all they did, Elizabeth Anderson said all they did was eat, and the food wasn't as good as in New Orleans, and they talked, which is what they did every night in New Orleans anyway. So uh, she viewed it as a great disappointment. But but it gave Faulkner material for, for his novel. In Sherwood Anderson and other famous Creoles, there's a a sketch of Spatling and Faulkner. Oh, yes. In their apartment. And hanging on the wall is a daisy, a BB, a daisy BB gun. 
That's right. It says now, Daisy on the stock. And for those of us of a certain age, we remember, remember those. But that was one of their forms of entertainment. Yeah. Was, uh, was shoot, not only shooting at windows across the street, but shooting people in the street. That's right. They were up in a third floor uh, garret, basically. And if you go to New Orleans today, you can, you can see it. You can spot it. And uh, they, they had this air rifle. I, I should say the heart of this group were a bunch of young guys in their 20s and early 30s. And it gave a kind of fraternity house flavor to, to much of it, you know, the, the drinking and the partying and the women. Uh, it, it was a bunch of young guys, and they, they haven't changed much in the intervening century. But they had this BB gun, uh, and they used it. There was an empty building across the street. They shot out all its windows, and when they were done with that, they started shooting pedestrians. They had a scoring system based on uh, rarity values. So shall I give you the details? Uh, <laughs> Bearded men and nuns. Bearded men and uh, nuns, particularly African-American nuns, were, were uh, high-scoring high targets. But, yeah, uh, Sherwood Anderson had a son by one of his previous marriages uh, who came to visit. And he, he got enamored, teenage kid, he got enamored of this and spent all his time hanging out in their apartment shooting people. And Faulkner was trying to work and Spratlin was trying to work. Finally, they decided the kid was around too much. <laughs> so they, they they took his trousers off and, and painted his private parts green and threw him out in the street. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, he didn't come back anymore. So he he learned, learned his lesson. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, anyhow, that's that's the kind of kind of atmosphere that you're talking about here. It's a lot of fun to write about. Let's talk about the fact that this bohemian world. And you think of bohemian, where there are no barriers, every sort of anything goes. But this was very much a lily white circle. Yes, it, it was indeed, and that's uh, one of the big distinctions between it and the places they were trying to emulate: Paris and Greenwich Village, Soho. I. I do write about this. I mean, you're in the deep south. It's the 1920s. Uh, how could it be any other way? You know, they're, they're simply, you're not going to build integrated institutions in New Orleans in 1927. But, not even going to try. But, but that doesn't mean that African Americans were not. No. I, uh, I mean, they, they were everywhere. They're omnipresent. I mean, again, you're in the, you're in the deep south, but they're, they're not part of the circle. They're not interacting as equals. They are. Uh, Subjects for, for painting, you paint a, paint a street scene, there's probably somebody black in it if you're doing an accurate representation. Uh, they're working on the docks, you go down and listen to them sing. Uh, they're your servants, they're in your household. One of the strange things about this is that even impecunious young artists like Faulkner and Spratling could afford a cook. So they had a, they had a cook came in and did their laundry. And, and uh, you know, you don't think of Bohemians by and large as having servants, but... Uh, in the Deep South in the 1920s, it seems certainly these folks did. That's where I'm, I'm going to make a segue to the Charleston Renaissance because African Americans were not a part of it, but they were very much, uh, in terms of literature, the subject, uh, whether you're looking at Porgy and Bess or some of DuBose Haywood's later works like Mamba's Daughters, where he has the protagonist actually think about addressing an adult black male as Mr. And he has this same protagonist attending a concert in Harlem where they sing Lift Every Voice and Sing, the Black National uh -huh. Anthem. Now, that's, that's pretty edgy stuff for a white group in the Deep South. Julia Peterkin's stories, which have now been reclaimed uh, and recognized for what they are, especially by anthropologists and even some historians. So... I think the Charleston group, it may have been more staid. It certainly was more staid. We don't see many writings about the debaucheries like you had in Bohemia. But in terms of the the subject matter, goes far beyond Elizabeth O'Neill Verner and her, her paintings. The writings in particular were... Yeah, it's, uh, they were edgy sometimes in a way that... A, a lot of the folks I'm writing about, uh, a lot of the writers... Uh, wrote about black folks. In fact, a couple of them basically made their living writing about writing comic stuff about black folks. It's kind of painful racist reading today. But uh, Rourke Bradford, 
uh, wrote a number of short stories, uh, some of which became the basis for uh, Green Pastures, the, the Broadway show and then the movie. A guy named Emmett Kennedy wrote uh, uh, short stories again and little sketches about his black neighbors across the river in Gretna, where he lived. He wound up in New York at Town Hall doing, in blackface, doing dialect stories. I mean, he, <laughs> that's part of the thing, part of the story, incidentally. There was a demand for this stuff. Bradford tried to write a serious novel about black life, and Time magazine said it was depressing, and basically people told him to stick with the comic stuff. Uh, so he did. He was making a living at it. You know, uh, Kennedy went to New York. He thought he was going to be a concert pianist, and as I say, he wound up telling dialect stories. Um, it's not just in the South that, that uh, people were trading in stereotypes and having a good time with it, white people. But uh, a lot of these people did write about blacks, black folks and black subjects, but it was, with a couple of exceptions, uh, completely in tune with the white racial stereotypes at mm -hmm. the time. Um, well, see that, at, that, best, at, at best, it was paternalistic, you know. Yeah, and I, yeah. Well, see, see that that's where Peterkin and, and even Hayward were a little bit on the, that was a little bit different. Hamilton Basso, a name that some of your listeners may recognize, he wrote The View from Pompey's Head. It was a successful novel in the 50s. Hamilton Basso was at this time just out of Tulane, a young kid. He was sort of literally sat at Sherwood Anderson's feet some evenings and listened to him tell stories. He wrote a short story that is uh, very much uh, sympathetic. He has a, it's about a black prostitute, but she is a rounded and sympathetic character. You know, she, she's she's a human being in ways that Rogue Bradford's creatures are not. At one point in, in your book, you, you talk about this Dixie Bohemia was self-consciously a reaction to H.L. Uh, Mencken's Sahara of the Beaux-Arts essay. Yes, that was published, I think, 1919. And not just uh, this crowd, but you know, the uh, Vanderbilt agrarians in Nashville. A lot, a lot of Southerners of sort of literary or artistic inclination set out to prove to Mencken that he was wrong. And the Double Dealer magazine, which you mentioned, part of this, part of this scene, a couple of young war veterans from New Orleans came home and weren't, weren't quite sure what to do, so they started a magazine. Uh, for, they were from wealthy local families, and their friends and their friends' relatives advertised in it, so it stayed afloat for a few years. It was an interesting little magazine. It was the first, it's where Faulkner's first publication was, published Ernest Hemingway's first publication. They got a lot of stuff from uh, big names, even despite the fact that they weren't paying anything. But uh, The Double Dealer, it was a, sort of a kindred thing to The Fugitive magazine out of Nashville. Nashville is the other city that I talk about as a you know, possibility for Bohemia that didn't quite happen. But it had the university that Charleston didn't have, and it had the literary magazine that Charleston didn't really have. The Poetry Society began publishing an annual yearbook in 1921, mm -hmm. and they very specifically address the Sahara of the Beaux-Arts. And, of course, Mencken would later come back to declare that Julia Peterkin, who was very much a part of the Poetry Society, which was really the nexus in Charleston for preservation, music, all of that, was one of the violets blooming in Yes. The desert. He's uh, Mencken's a you know more complicated. His attitude of the South was more complicated than you'd guess from reading that essay, Sahara of the Beaux Arts. He was also a patron and a backer and booster of, of the Double Dealer. You know when he saw uh, sprouts emerging in the in the in this desert that he had identified, he he watered them and did his best. Fred Hobson has a very good book about uh, Mencken. I'm trying to remember the title, but. Uh, Mankin in the South, it's specifically about his attitude. He, he liked Southerners. He encouraged Southerners. He published Southerners. He basically helped jumpstart Julia Peterkin's career. Uh, yeah. Other folk, I mean, obviously, other folks out of the Charleston group, Harvey Allen, Anthony Adverse became a bestseller. And don't want to forget Josephine Pinckney and her poetry as well as her novels. Her novels would come after World War II, but her poetry was very well thought of. But again... The Charleston group, it is more staid. I, I really, li I really like, I like your comparison. It was more Episcopalian, <laughs> and it was although they were artists and writers, the elite, the social elite connection was very much a part of it. Not that it didn't happen in New Orleans. I mean, uptown did go down to the to the quarter, but yeah. the the artists themselves were 
people like Alice Ravenel, U.G. Smith, and and others were part of the social elite in yeah yeah in yeah Charleston. they all had all had three or four names didn't they? Uh, <laughs> but in, in New Orleans, uh, there were these you know working artists from working class, lower middle class backgrounds, and they they mingled with the uptown people on a basis of equality. One of them, a photographer who went off and had a career for a while in Paris and wound up in Los Angeles, said New Orleans was the only place he'd ever been where he had a social standing, you know, because he was invited to parties because people were interested in what he was doing. You you had a you had an element of the uptown crowd who were artistic and or wanted to support artists or hang out with artists, enjoyed hanging out with artists. Uh, Faulkner actually didn't have much use for these people, but uh, Spratling cultivated them because he recognized that how useful they were in so many ways. He also liked them in a way that Faulkner was sort of antisocial. But uh, many of these people were Jewish, and that's another part of the story. Uh, the two guys that founded the Double Dealer were, were, were Jewish. The young artist whose marriage made the front page of the Times Picayune was Jewish from a sugar family that owned sugar refineries. You know, everywhere in America, Jews have been overrepresented in artistic and cultural activities. I mean, it, it's simply a fact. I think even more so in in New Orleans. Um, there's a lot of speculation. I'm not the first to notice this. There's a lot of speculation about it. Calvin Trillin wrote once, I think, in The New Yorker that. Uh, Maybe it's because they're excluded from the elite Mardi Gras crews and the gentlemen's clubs that are associated with the Mardi Gras crews. And so uh, they compensate for this by being uh, greatly involved in, in things like Le Petit Theater and the Double Dealer and the Arts and Crafts Club. That could be, and, and, uh, you know, it could just be they don't spend all their money on, on Mardi Gras balls and costumes and they've got some left over to, for cultural Activities. In any case, there's certainly a presence there. And the, uh, this wouldn't have happened without the New Orleans Jewish community. That's another difference, I think, between New Orleans and Charleston and Nashville. Uh, the Jewish community was not a greatly higher percentage of the population, but because the population is so much bigger, there's just a lot more. The Jewish community was much larger. You quote Sherwin Anderson as saying that uh, most of the intellectuals and the most interesting people here are Jews. Yeah, that could be a slight exaggeration, but only a slight one. Uh, you know, you look at the boards of, of these, of Le Petit Theater uh, or the Arts and Crafts Club. Uh, you look at the benefactors of, of the Double Dealer. And major benefactors of Tulane as well. That's right. This, there is this uh, old established Jewish elite in New Orleans. Many of them Alsatian, German, Jewish many of them present before the Civil War, involved often in the cotton business. Judah P. Benjamin was uh, America's first avowedly Jewish senator. <laughs> there had been one before who uh, didn't broadcast his, his religion. But uh, Judah P. Benjamin was, was a major figure and a senator from Louisiana, Jewish. He was also America's first Jewish cabinet officer, although it was in the Confederate cabinet. He was secretary of everything, I think, war, treasury, states. He, he sort of went through it. After the war, he went off to England and became a distinguished lawyer. Well, when you're discussing what happened to Dixie Bohemia, you, you entitled that chapter of your book, The End of an Interlude. And I'm just going to read the first part of this paragraph because I think it's really kind of significant. It may seem odd to attribute transformation and decline to a successful campaign for preservation. But in fact, that's a large part of what changed the French Quarter in ways that largely snuffed out its bohemian aspirations. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's true. I mentioned this alliance between the Uptown Society women and the Bohemian shock troops who actually lived in the quarter. They were both interested in preservation uh, of the quarter. The, the major battle of the day was, was the quarter going to be turned down and paved and turned into parking lots? I mean, there were some businessmen who served as very convenient villains in this this melodrama that played out because there were people that said, you know, this is a disgrace, it's a slum, we need to clear it, get in some modern hygienic buildings. So the society women and the Bohemians together confronted and resisted largely successfully that impulse. As I say, the story wasn't quite that simple. There were businessmen who understood that a restored French Quarter could be good for business. But the society women and the Bohemians didn't actually agree on everything. 
they both wanted to keep the buildings from being torn down. The society women wanted to fix them up and uh, return the quarter to its former Creole antebellum elegance. And the Bohemians kind of liked it the way it was. You know, it's got a rundown, seedy, romantic, uh, cheap. The society women's vision largely prevailed, I have to say. Incidentally, let me tell you a story. One of the things that happened there was a, a group of uptown women led by Grace King uh, started something called Le Petit Salon, which is just off Jackson Square. It was a bring back the cultivated salons of antebellum uh, New Orleans, and they'd meet weekly and have speakers in and that sort of thing. They fixed up this elegant building, antebellum building. And I'm going to be speaking to Le Petit Salon <laughs> in a few weeks, mm. uh, which is a, a trip. I'm <laughs> delighted to have the invitation. The woman who invited me has been going through newspaper databases because the myth that Le Petit Salon has had recently is that, you know, there's this elegant building. They moved into it and, and continuity. But she's been going to the now online databases of newspaper records and reading the police reports about, about, about who from the building turned up in the police reports. And, you know, it looks as if in the teens it was a den of uh, opium smokers and prostitutes. It was, <laughs> it was just a, a seriously bad building. And so what they did was take it over, fix it up. It's now so respectable they've forgotten it hasn't always been respectable. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- nothing like revisionist history. That's right. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with a, a writer named Nell Bristow. She's a South Carolinian. Yeah, I, I know I know the name. I've not read her. Well, in 1932, she was living in—this is a little bit after she was living in New Orleans, and she wrote a book called The Mardi Gras Murders. And it's one debauch after another with people dying along the way. But after I read your description of the way Faulkner and Spratlin frequently spent Sundays— <laughs> um, which which was to have their first drink right after breakfast and then keep going <laughs> through, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, through, yeah. through the day. And the wild parties, particularly the costume parties that the uh, art yeah, there's, community there's, put on. There's some of that left. You know, one of the pleasures of writing this book was I got to live in, in uh, New Orleans for a couple of months while I was researching it. We were driving around in the countryside and went through Napoleonville, and there was a drive-through daiquiri stand. We went around at the back, and there was a sign that said, Sunday special, one gallon, $17. <laughs> and I thought, you know, we're not in North Carolina anymore. <laughs> you could say that again. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a great place to hang out. I'm not sure I'd like to live there on a permanent basis, but I'm happy to be there indefinitely. Well, well John, being a distinguished professor emeritus at Chapel Hill, surely you could afford an apartment in the quarter these days, right? <laughs> I actually mentioned that uh, to Dale, and she looked. At, she told me I was out of my mind. So that <laughs> well, I'd be going by myself. <laughs> it'd be a different retirement community from where you are now. That's that's for sure. That's for sure. It'd be a lot of fun, but I wouldn't live as long. Even the quarter, which is of course a major tourist center, a number of years ago, I was back in the early 1990s in New Orleans talking about a job, and part of the job was going to come with a house in the quarter. But they said that there's a problem, you know, you really can't go out at night. Well, to some extent, that that is true. We were at a party, uh, a dinner party, and we were four blocks from the house we were living in, and we were going to walk home after it, and our friends said, oh, no, you mustn't do that. They called a cab. They had the cab, had cab company on speed dial, so we took a cab for four blocks, you know. Um, it, it still can be kind of dangerous and scary place. They tend to prey on tourists who perhaps have had too much to drink. So if, if you're down there, be careful. Well, John, we've got about two minutes. Okay. Um, sort of... uh, let, me, let me say something about uh, the natural history of Bohemia. I, I alluded to it earlier. You know, people come in because they like to hang out with artists, and some of them move in, start fixing things up. Prices go up. Artists get priced out of it. Tourists are all around anyway. It's not the kind of neighborhood it was that attracted them in the first place. And they move on. You know, the irony is some of these people moved on. Some of them went to Santa Fe when the same thing happened all over again. Some of them went down to Tosco in Mexico. Same thing happened all over again. It's not unique to New Orleans. It, it happens uh, with Bohemians. New Orleans still has Bohemian neighborhoods, but it's not the French Quarter anymore. Originally, it moved across Esplanade to an area on the just down the river called the Marigny. That's now been fixed up, and it's 
getting expensive and artists can't afford it. They're moving further down the river. Now the hot new area for hipsters is, is the, the, the bar water, and it's getting restaurants and coffee shops and the, all of that. It'll probably get too expensive. I, my, my prediction is they'll go across the river to Algiers or someplace like that next. In your preface, you said you'd never intended to write another book, uh, and you wrote Dixie Bohemia. What about the next one? Well, I, I I did. I am writing another barbecue book, Walter. Okay. Well, see, then you then you then you did not tell the truth in your preface. You said you were not going to rehash. Well, Sorry, that the bad part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The UNC Press has a series of cookbooks on sort of excuse the word iconic Southern food. So there's a buttermilk cookbook and a, and a cornbread cookbook. And the world doesn't need another barbecue cookbook, but this series needs a barbecue cookbook. So they asked Dale and me if we'd write it, and we simultaneously, Dale said no, and I said yes. So I'm testing recipes right now. I cooked a goat the other day, but that's another story. Okay. Well, John Shelton Reed, distinguished Southern sociologist, historian, and author of Dixie Bohemia, a French Quarter Circle in the 1920s. Thanks so much for being with us on The Journal today. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. John Reed's a friend. He's a great sociologist. He's also a very good historian. In Dixie Bohemia, he's captured a time and a place and a spirit, sadly killed by its own success. But while it was going, it was quite a place and quite a time. The Roaring Twenties elsewhere couldn't hold a candle to what was going on in New Orleans in the 1920s. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.